tapping into the side of you that has that internal drive is super important because discipline's a really hard thing, right? Like cadence and consistency to me matters. And when I know I'm off loop is when I don't have that consistency or cadence. And if you take any successful business, any successful athlete, the reality is what makes them most successful is some sort of cadence and consistency. That's Brian Hill. And this is episode 86 of the Morning Shakeout Podcast. Hey, what is up, everybody? Welcome back or welcome to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I'm your host, Mario Fraioli. And this week, I sat down with my good friend, Brian Hill. Brian is the co-owner and CEO of Rehab United Sports Medicine and Physical Therapy, which has offices in both San Diego and Seattle. A physical therapist by trade, Brian was a collegiate All-American in soccer and played professionally for five years before opening Rehab United in 2003. He took up running and triathlon after his soccer career ended, and he also coaches a small roster of athletes in those two sports. In this conversation, we dug into Brian's story, how he got into physical therapy and developed his treatment philosophy, the importance of cadence and consistency in anything that you do, why community matters so much to him, what runners can do to get strong and stay healthy, and a lot more. There are a ton of applicable takeaways in this one, so let's dive right in with Brian Hill. know me what i like about this is we're friends yeah and you and i can i i i kind of recognize like maybe what i'm talking about is hit its term and move on which is fine so i don't i don't have a problem talking and i don't you know what's i mean we should just pick it up right there we've had many conversations in the past where i wish i had some sort of recording mechanism (laughs) where i could get this down and share it with a wider audience of people because I think you've got a lot of interesting, innovative, experiential, and just informative things to say about a lot of things, especially like physical therapy and staying healthy and strength training uh, and all of those things. So here we are. We've got the mic in front of us. It is actually recording. I am going to share this conversation with other people. Uh, But Brian Hill, I am excited to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I respect you tremendously. However, I'm glad that at some of our dinners, we haven't had a mic there. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, Well, a lot of my listeners aren't going to recognize your name. Brian Hill's a pretty common name, but there's Brian Hills in the NBA. It's not him. There are Brian Hills in other sports, not any of them. Why don't we start just by telling my listeners a little bit about yourself, who you are and what you do? Perfect. Well, it's Brian with a Y. I always make sure people know that just... And why? Because I think my my mom was really keen on giving me this Irish name, Uh, my brother, Sean, S-E-A. And so uh, so obviously my name's Brian Hill. Uh, I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, playing soccer. I was a kid that if if there was a ball, it was at my feet. I'm one of those kids. You know, you see the basketball kids that take their ball to and from school. That was me. I slept with it. It was in my locker most of high school. So I played multiple sports, but I I literally had new soccer cleats like under my pillow. So it, that was my passion. And then, you know, as my life evolved, you know, you're talking to a guy that's become a physical therapist and I own Rehab United Sports Medicine and Physical Therapy in San Diego. So essentially a physical therapy wellness company 
We have massage, we have acupuncture, women's pelvic health, blood flow restriction, you name it, we do it. By design, I wanted to do everything I possibly could to help the community. Um, but, you know, I grew up in Arizona, ended up going to school back east, playing at my university, and, and then I was drafted to play professional soccer. That got me to the West Coast. Again, I came to California, and growing up, I thought, I'll never be in California. I'd been out here for tournaments, I saw the traffic, whatever. Silly me, I didn't realize how great San Diego was. And once I was here playing soccer professionally, I was like, I'm never going to leave. This this is outstanding. And I certainly didn't want 122-degree heat in Phoenix anymore. So I, that was an executive decision on my part. <laughs> what was it about soccer as a young kid that pulled you in? That's such a good question. I, I think internally I always had a significant amount of drive. Like it, it, If you ask my mom or my friends or my brother, you know, my family in general, they'll say like, Brian never stopped moving. And so my mom at five years old, single parent, two kids, two boys, eating her, eating her out of house and home, she said, I got to give them something to wear them out. And so she put us in soccer thinking it would wear us out. And sure enough, it didn't. I would, I'd play soccer all day, go to practice, then come home and dribble the ball and kick in the, you know, break lamps at the house. And I think that drive was always internally, like I was the kid at five, six years old that if I didn't score five, six goals in that game, I was mad at myself. And I would literally just intently go after the net and score. Like it was something about that. Like I loved that glory and that, like I felt the best I've ever felt. It's just like euphoria. And that lasted forever. Like the thought of scoring a goal for me was there wasn't anything that I could find that drug that was better than that. Fast forward a little bit, not to skip over too much of your early athletic career, but when did you realize that professional soccer could be a possibility for you? Or even before that, because you played in college, that you knew it was something you wanted to do as a scholastic athlete at the university level, and then not to get too far ahead, but then beyond even that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've listened to your podcast and I hear some of the athletes that come on here and I'm like, wow, dude, these are athletes that have accomplished so much. And I probably am more like most of your listeners where they haven't got to the elite level, but they've gotten close or they've won a couple of local races or whatever. So as an athlete in soccer, I was always the best as a kid. I played two years up with my brother and that's how so soccer evolved for me because my mom would drop him off at practice and I was too young to do anything. So she just left me at practice and she went to work and she'd come back and get us. And I remember just playing with two years up just practicing with them. So by the time I played with my own age group, I, I had a skill set that I think was a little bit more advanced. So I was really successful. And then I got into high school again, fairly successful state championships. We won and then go to get to college. And now I'm the five, seven kid, right? That's fast, but maybe not as fast as they want. And the division one schools are going, eh, maybe we don't take a risk on this kid. And I didn't want a red shirt. I wanted to play right through. And my my high school coach went to college at the University of New England. He says, hey, you need to go there. Like, you'll, they'll build a program around you. You'll be, it'll be a good situation you'll for you. You'll be the star of the team. I'll be the star of the team, but less of that. But it'll be a place where you can really influence the team. And mm -hmm. so I went there with this Division One attitude and took our team, not me personally, but as a, as a group, we were really successful. I had no concept of pro. Like, I wasn't that kid that was like, I'm going to be a pro soccer player. Sure, I'm sure I thought of it. Um, you know, Pele was certainly an idol of mine. But really when I was like, wow, there's something bigger here for me was my freshman year. I led the um, entire nation in goals. I had 25 goals in college, which so was- Division two or three? 
We were in AI when I started. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So I actually had Division One scholarships, but it was going to be red shirt, miss a whole year, so on and so forth. And uh, this school was a small school that would I'd end up with a PT degree in four and a half years. Like I didn't even realize how lucky I was going to get there because anyone that is now wanting to aspire to be a PT or is a physical therapist, uh, they have a doctorate, which certainly takes some time, right? So that's seven years versus I was four and a half in and out. But that end of my year, I got a call from my coach and he said, hey, can you come down to the office? I need to talk to you. And I show up and I got a letter and I was an All-American. So as soon as I was an All-American, I went, holy cow, what, like that's a big deal for me Could as a player. Could open doors for you. And I'm sitting there looking at the list of guys from Virginia and UCLA and you know Division One programs and I'm making the team with them. So that from that point forward, my next mindset was, oh, I want to be All-American every year. And and that was the goal, and that happened. So four-year All-American was what really opened the door for professional teams to see me. And then, sure enough, take a risk on me, which is what happened. You mentioned how at the University of New England, you were in a physical therapy program. That's the degree that you graduated with, and you've gone on to build Rehab United, which we'll get into later in this conversation. When did you decide that you wanted to be a physical therapist? Even better question. So... Again, I skip over so much because you're, you know, the way the question goes, you start thinking of things and it evolves. But uh, freshman year in high school, I'm playing soccer for the high school. I'm playing for the U.S. National Olympic Development Team. And I'm in, I'm practicing roughly six hours a day, maybe eight, right? For a 14 year old kid, it's a lot. My buddy and I go skiing, water skiing in Phoenix, just outside, you know, an hour and a half away. I come home, get a phone call, message on my voicemail. Hey, we have an indoor final. You want to come play soccer indoor downtown? Go down there. Go up for a ball towards the end of the game, and I land and snap my femur in half. (laughs) I wish people could see your face right now. So I literally landed one way and was on my butt laying down facing the other way, and my leg was bent in the middle of the femur, not at my knee. And... What's funny as a kid, you all you remember is your friends being in casts, you know, a wrist cast or a leg cast, and they're not in it that long, and they come back in eight weeks, and they're good. So in my mind, I was, I'm, I'm going to be back in eight weeks, no big deal. And mind you, this is 91, so 92, Barcelona is coming, and my chance of making the team, although very slim, is in my mind, like maybe Slipping in a year I'll make point, it. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm going to be 15. I can make the under-20 team. That would be great. So I go to... The hospital, and sure enough, I realized, wow, they're going to put a rod in my leg. Uh, I'm going to be out for a really long time. I actually didn't play soccer for approximately a year. And in that time frame, I met a PT, obviously, in the hospital. And then uh, let's go back in 1991. You, you break your leg, and a, and a femur fracture is massive, and you have a surgery, and not one doctor said, hey, you should go to physical therapy. It's just ludicrous to me. So, like, you think about it now, you would never have that. Like, the concept of a kid just naturally healing isn't the case. Like, we all need structure. We all need some facilitation to heal. And so I kind of took it upon myself to do my own rehab. But in the hospital, I met this PT. And she, oh, you and your brother would be great PTs. So we started coming up with this idea that we'd be a PT. While you were a freshman in high school. Yeah. That's crazy. But I think because if you know me, my, my brain is like constantly moving. And the joke is like, is are you paying attention? You know, I have so much in my mind. And so I really didn't sit there and focus on it. I didn't write about it. I just It just came about. And so when I got accepted to the University of New England, I literally get, ended up in a PT program without, like, 
without any process that they go through now. My interview with the dean was breakfast at a restaurant. And I didn't realize how lucky I was to have that school until, you know, four and a half years later. I'm like, whoa, I really lucked out in that path. And however you believe, you know, I, th- I think there's something unique about how it all happened. Like I was meant to be there for whatever reason. Sounds like it to me. But going back to the actual rehabilitative process, while yeah. you've got a rod in your leg, you're out of soccer for a year, you're in the hospital, you meet this PT. Was there an experience during that time in a physical therapy setting where either the therapist itself or people who were associated with the facility had an impact on you where you're like, yeah, yeah, this is what I want to do because this is helping me get back to where I want to be. And maybe someday I can be that person who helps someone else get back to where they want to be. Yeah. Not to discredit my PT at all, but my PT, literally the extent was the time I was in the hospital. So five, five total days, six days. And I went home and I had no PT. So this was an internal thing that happened in my brain where I started thinking about this seems odd to me that I'm sitting here on my couch for three months and no one is, I'm not getting worked on by any professional. Just sitting on my ass. I don't really, yeah, sitting on my butt here. And so I literally took it upon myself. We had a pool. If you don't have a pool in Phoenix, you're crazy. And went out in the pool and I just kicked. And I literally would hold on to the side of the pool and kick for, I'd start off with 10 minutes, 20, 30. I'd kick for an hour. You'd think I'd be a better swimmer. I'm not a great swimmer. (laughs) And so- I, I think that was an interesting piece because there isn't the person I can tie it to. It literally, it just became this internal side of, of me thinking. And I've always thought that way. I've always thought, what's better out there? What can we do differently? What, what offering can be provided to me, to my community, to an athlete? Because so much of the time, it's easier just to stick with the norm and do what everyone else is doing. And my mind was like, well, there's got to be something better. Well, I think there's two pieces there. There's one, being driven enough to get off of the couch and do something so that you can back get back to doing what you love faster. But then also the curiosity to figure out, how do I actually do that? Do I kick in a pool? Do I, I mean, not that you could squat at the time, but do I go like, you know, squat weight? Do I do all these mobility exercises? And I mean, you're you know, in high school at the time. So your actual education in the area of therapy is non-existent at that point. So to be able to just have that type of mindset and think through, well, what can I do? Like, I can't do what I want to do, which is play soccer, but what can I do to get myself back there faster? I mean, I, I think that is a really unique characteristic that not everyone possesses. Yeah, I think you if you think about a kid, right, most kids just want to play. So essentially... Knowing that, right, believing in that, maybe the drive to get back to soccer was so high that I knew I had to do something. And then also you're lucky enough to get that strength class in in high school where they just, it's the football coach that runs it. And I remember doing leg extensions and squats and a few things going, well, that really made my quad hurt. So I'll do some of that. The problem was my mom caught me lunge walking and she's like, Oh my gosh, you can walk? Like I had been hiding it from her. So she's like, I'm done doing all your laundry. You're you're <laughs> you're, you're cut off. So I got busted by my mom. That was pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I, I think you, that's who I am. And I think tapping into the side of you that has that internal drive is super important because discipline's a really hard thing, right? Like cadence and consistency to me matters. And when I know I'm off loop is when I don't have that consistency or cadence. And if you take any successful business, any successful athlete, the reality is what makes them most successful is some sort of cadence and consistency because 
now they're able to see data. They're able to see information where the classic is I go to the gym for three months, lose some weight, now I'm done. Or PT, I come once, twice in a row, and then I don't come for two weeks. Clearly, that isn't the, you know, the recipe for success. And for me, that was always an important piece for me. It was I had this high drive that was just internal, and I wanted to kind of see what I could do next. Like, how quick can I get back? How quick can I, can I play? That's never left you. No, and I want to go back right now, and I want to treat myself at 14. I feel like I could have been back like six months faster. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? If you could go tell yourself anything, like, go to a PT. So Hold that thought. Yeah. At 14 years old, you go through this traumatic injury. You can't play soccer for a year. You've got a rod in your leg. You're figuring out on your own how to get back to doing what you love to do, what you're doing at a high level. What was that transition like back to soccer? Because I think a lot of people listening to this, they haven't been through that. God, I hope they haven't gone through that because it just sounds absolutely awful. But we've all gone through injuries that prevent us from doing what we want to do. And especially the ones that keep us out for a prolonged period of time. There's always that fear. Sometimes it's front of mind. Sometimes it's in the back of your mind where you don't think you'll ever get back to the level that you were. And you see that a lot with running. You see it in triathlon, these endurance sports that we're involved in now. Yeah. What was that like for you at 14 years old? Did you have those thoughts? And if so, how did you work through them? I had them all the time. I, I think doubt is such a, it's, it's like pain, doubt, and fear are these like battles I've always had to like think about. And doubt was pretty massive because you're growing up with, you're growing up playing soccer with my mom, right? And my mom's not a former soccer player. In fact, if you were born in the seventies, most of your parents didn't play soccer. So it's not like a dad who knew what was going on. Right. And so I would have this doubt all the time, like what's going to happen. And the problem in medicine is often you're told a story that isn't really the truth. You're told you need to take longer. You're told the risk of a fracture is going to be higher. So I was scared to some extent to do anything on this leg. Um, but I didn't really follow that rule. I'm kind of the, you know, the stop sign is a little bit yellow kind of guy and rules don't always apply. And so working through that doubt is something that it was, I think was so valuable for me moving forward in my life later on, because I I didn't have any coaching. I didn't have any mentor telling me to do this, but if you were going to compete at a high level, like you're going to have doubt. And if you don't have the right team around you, it's it can be very problematic to the point where you're going to quit or you're going to step aside. And what's ironic about that is I distinctly remember the team I was playing for didn't take me back. So you can imagine being 15 now and you're being essentially ousted out of a team, which you were a really good player for. They just kind of written you off. Yeah, and I don't know if it was that, but I think just all the circumstances line, oh, we already have players. Maybe a coach didn't think I was going to, you know, be at that level. And the fun piece was my very first tournament back, we played my ex team and I scored five goals, which was insane for me because I just had the game of a lifetime. And then for like the next two months, I was terrible. So I went from, I had, I must have put all my energy into that game. I had five goals, which in soccer is not very common. And, uh, I, you know, I, take a step back. And for the next two months, I'm actually sitting the bench a lot. I'd never sat the bench before. So at 15, I'm dealing with this, like, am I going to be a good enough player? Am I going to go to college and play soccer? Or what do I got to do, you know, at this point to kind of get to that level again? That was really tough. And so I think I created these internal strategies of kind of talking myself up, really trying to create a belief that maybe someone else wasn't telling me and finding that 
path for myself was it was difficult. I remember it being very trying. And so what I tried to do is surround myself with teammates that would kind of be like, dude, let's go, let's go play on the side. You, you know, let's shoot around and, and just kind of push me to that next level. And it, again, another great lesson for me at that time, because it's, it's so difficult to come back from injury in general, because your mind has learned, you know, left, right, right brain, you've learned this limitation you have, you're not superhuman. So when I see these high level athletes, I'm, it's always impressive on what they're implementing into their system. Right. And it's not just physical. Like how many athletes get mental coaching after an injury? Not too many. Very valuable. Yeah, it's a valid point. I mean, because injury, it is a very traumatic thing physically as it was in your case, but there is an emotional component to that, which can last far longer than it takes the injury to heal. And there can be like anything else in life, little triggers that end up setting it off, you know, down the road. And while you go through a rehabilitative process, like you do here at Rehab United after sustaining an injury, that seems like accepted and people know that, okay, I got hurt. I've got to go like to physical therapy. I've got to get stronger so that this doesn't happen again. But I think that is such an important point on the, on the mental side of things. Some people have good coaches and they, good coaches recognize that and they can help the athlete work through that period in their life. But many don't and they end up lost and they end up floating, you know, kind of in this, in this space where they've lost that confidence and they can't get back to that level, not because they're not physically capable of doing it, but mentally they haven't been able to get back to that place. Yeah. And I had to set little wins. So I would always look at what that win would do for me emotionally. Right. So just standing there shooting the ball, right. Just hitting the ball with my leg meant meant I could do it. And so that would enter my brain as like, that's a little win for me. And now I use that with a lot of my clients where look at the win you got. You're, you're able to drop down into a squat five inches lower, you're, you have more range, whatever little piece of the puzzle that they can tie to and grab onto and know that's a progression because some injuries don't heal quickly. And so knowing that and giving someone something to believe in, and we're human, as a human, we have such a you know depth to us where you kind of have the mind, body, spirit thing, right? So I know the body so well. Like we're engineers of the body. Like it's just like a car coming into a mechanic. Like I can look at you and tell you everything that's going on with your body and biomechanically this is not working and I feel really good about that skill set. We somewhat have a psychological component to our education, but we're not psychologists. So how good are you at reading people? How good are you aligning interests? How can I ask you as a client the right questions? So I know what you want. And if I don't ask, I don't know, right? Think of all the coaches that just don't ask. That's the problem. That's why questions are important. Yeah. I think, you know, it's funny. We're doing a podcast where you're asking me questions to speak, but like I spend so much of my time just asking the other person in front of me, what about you? What are your goals? What are your interests? What are you trying to get back to? So that we're aligning and getting, we, as long as I know your goal, I can help you get there. Yeah. Well, and that's coaching too. I mean, I see a lot of parallels from what you just said with these little victories in terms of coming back from an injury and recognizing your progress. I have those conversations with my athletes sure. all the time who have this big goal. Maybe it's a marathon or yeah. an ultra and it's six months away. So we'll have like tune up races along the way. We'll have, you know, their training is going to is going to progress in terms of volume and intensity and what they're able to do. And then we get to the race itself. And for whatever reason, maybe it doesn't go well. Sure. And it's like, oh, the whole season's a waste. I, I wasted the last like five months. It's like, no, let's, let's recognize those, those 
not even little victories along the way of, hey, you ran your highest sustainable volume for maybe a three-month period. You did workouts that you couldn't have done a year ago. You won X, Y, and Z races, or you set personal best at these lesser distances. But I think we can be so laser-focused on these big things. Yeah. And maybe in the case of an injury, it's like getting back to a certain point and not realizing those little steps along the way. So I really appreciate that approach and the questioning side of it. I mean, I ask questions for a living on this podcast, but I mean, that's also how I coach. I think a lot of coaches view themselves as someone who has to have all the answers or even athletes look at coaches as someone who has to have all the answers. And yeah, they've got to know their stuff. Like sure. you said, you can look at someone's body and tell you what's going wrong. I can do that with someone's training, but most of it's just asking questions and getting to understand the athlete and what they're dealing with and where they are in the course of their journey so you can help them. Uh, and yeah. I think it's just important to keep that in mind no matter what it is that you're trying to achieve. There's obviously a, a parallel. Coaching is – there's some element of coaching and physical therapy and fitness anyway. And – I think so much of the time people haven't really thought about their goals. Like high-level athletes or even type A athletes, right? You think about a lot of marathoners and, and a lot of triathletes. They're setting big goals for themselves. But there's so many people that aren't talking about the other things, the little things that uh, apply to that training program, such as how my diet is or how much sleep I have and so on and so forth. And so really it it's kind of a twofold part, you know, twofold piece where the coach needs to be asking the questions, but the athlete has to be giving feedback or in our case, the client, if the client's not giving me feedback, I can't about face and change something. And that's very classic where you get in, you back hurts, you come to PT, you're sore after the session and you kind of want to cancel your appointments instead of just picking up the phone and going, Hey, my back's bumming after whatever we did last time. Can we talk it through? And so recognizing that things are going to happen negatively in a training program or a, in, in my case, a physical therapy 12-week session. It just happens. Sometimes you need to take a step back or two steps back so that you can move forward. I mean, that's an old axiom in, yeah, in itself, but it's easy to lose sight of that when you're in it. Yeah. Well, and you want it now. We're in a society that, right? I mean, everything is about, I see this in the highest level athletes I treat. Like, I don't know if what I'm doing is helping because they're doing eight other things cryotherapy and cupping and taping and this and that. So by the time they come see me, if they're sore, I don't, I don't really know if you're, you know, hurt or not. And so I think be cautious of Dr. Google and cautious of the Instagram coach often, you know, what are we learning and where are we learning it from? And are we asking the coach the right questions too? I want to come back to some of that yeah, sure. later on in this conversation, bringing it back to you and your athletic career. After your injury, I mean, you were in high school, you figured some things out on your own, but then you went into a physical therapy program. Once you were firmly on that path, you're still playing soccer competitively at a very high level. Did you make any changes to what you were doing outside of your daily soccer practices as far as like, you know, prehab, strength training, rehab, any of that sort of stuff as you gained knowledge in an actual classroom and clinical setting? hundred percent, like immediately. Like, and I always, I've always been that way. I apply things as fast as possible, and there's different strategies, right? Take it in, process it, and apply it. Usually I can process pretty quickly. And so we got into the meat of our program in my junior year, and as soon as you're getting the good stuff, you know, the kinesiology aspect of things and the physiology piece, what, what's happening to the tissue when we do this or that, and how do we lengthen the tissue, 
my whole team, I mean, literally, if you had, if you took my university, half my team are PTs, the other half are occupational therapists. So every single one of us is just applying this. So we probably oh, had the wild. best, we had the best warm up of any college, you know, like our, our, our pregame, our, our off season was so great because we were not just of the mindset of PT, but we wanted to be strength and conditioning specialists, a lot of us. So we would apply those and test them on ourselves and test them on the team. So one of the really, like, one of the results of that was we were by far the fittest team. We would play overtime games and no one could run with us. You know, that was that was fun. And that was because we'd put together these these off seasons that really prepared us effectively, gain our strength back. We, we got in the gym in a small college that does not have a strength and conditioning coach. We're doing it on our own. Uh, that, was, that was really fun to really use our ourselves as the test models. You're guinea pigs. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and you, as a as a rehab specialist, every time a guy's hurt, like he's on the bus, we're already re- mobbing his ankle. We're, we're already, mis- like on literally he's, he's been hurt 30 minutes and we're already massaging his ankle sprain and getting the swelling out. I mean, even though we had athletic trainers, I mean, you literally had 14 other guys that were That's treating him. That's crazy. It was pretty fun. And, and so that was a great learning experience for me because sure. I think- you can read the books all you want, but when you start to apply it, when you actually work with athletes, when you start experiencing, experiencing it, because the clinicals are great in physical therapy, but I'll be honest, like PT is about getting to a basic level. Sometimes when you do your internships, you're only spending so much hand on time. The PT's not real comfortable with you touching their patient. So it's not like it's not like a residency where a doctor comes out and he's ready to go. Well, it's another parallel with coaching. I get questions all the time. What certification should I get? What courses <laughs> totally. should I go to? What clinics should I attend? I say start coaching. Like start coaching. Like start getting an athlete. It doesn't have to be a high level athlete. In fact, it's better that it's not. But just sure. start coaching someone. Learn yep. how to interact with another human being. Get to know them on a very deep level understand how running and training fits into their life and how that affects their life, vice versa. Like that's the best training that you can get. That's what's going to help you become a better coach. It's not that, as you just explained, that other stuff is not important, but I think it can be really easy to get lost in the weeds of, oh, I want to check all the boxes and get the letters after my name. And then once I do that, I'll be ready to start coaching someone. It's like, no, it's like you just got to dive in first. Well, and I think my influence as an athlete changed the way I thought of physical therapy because – and we can talk about it now or later, but ultimately physical therapy has been a very slow evolving field. So if you go look at 30 years ago, PT is kind of the same. It, it, it's, it was the same exercise, the same handouts, right? So you're learning from someone and obviously you're taking their tool, tool bag and skill set and you're evolving in your own. But as an athlete, I felt like there was something bigger and better for um, my, my clients. So I always push the envelope in terms of, okay, you're in an ankle brace. Why? what's the risk? We sprained an ankle. I don't understand why we're casting this. I don't understand why we're fixing this for six weeks. Like everything in my mind said, every time I've hurt my ankle, if I moved it a lot, I felt better. As long as there's no fracture. And sure enough, I started applying those techniques and I, I saw patients get better faster. And so that, that really pushed me to kind of push the envelope even more. And so I constantly seeked out information or ways or strategies or courses that really pushed the envelope because I felt like, again, I saw the strength and conditioning world evolving, right? We went from very isolated lifts to more functional lifts. You saw the evolution of CrossFit, Orange Theory. You're looking at just such a massive change. And I felt like personal trainers and personal trainers and strength and conditioning coaches were really open to change and, tr- you know, really trying new things. 
And it seemed like our industry, PT, physical therapy, was very averse to this change. Like, oh, what are we doing? Why would you do that? That's risky. Yeah, playbook. And recognizing that we were taught one way. We're taught a we're we're taught the body on a dissected body. It's laying there doing nothing, right? That's not how the muscle functions. So as soon as you stand up, you do something different. So if you're a runner, why am I laying you on a table for 90% of the treatment? Why is your exercise prescription laying on your stomach or your back? You're a runner. You just told me you hurt every time your right foot hits the ground when you're running. Why am I not standing you up looking at that and seeing what the problem is? So that's where our whole industry changed for me and for this company because we felt strongly that's what needed to change. And that influence came from me being an athlete. Hey, we're taking a quick break to thank our sponsor for this episode. It's the 37th annual Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon 10K and 5K. This race is a runner's favorite for its scenery and value. I can personally vouch for it as I've run the half marathon many times, and last year I had a blast winning the 10K. The half marathon is a fast and certified course through San Francisco's scenic Golden Gate Park, and it's been selected as the road race of the year by the Roadrunners Club of America several times. The 5K and 10K are both fast downhill courses, and both are certified by USA Track and Field. After the race, you can follow the runners and walkers to the post-race festival for food, drinks, free massages, and offerings from all the vendors. The Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon 10K and 5K is presented by Pama Kid Runners. This event supports local San Francisco Bay Area community organizations and nonprofits with donations of more than $75,000 per year, which is just incredible. So mark your calendars. Race day is February 2nd, 2020. You can register today at getfitkpsf.com. Use the code SHAKEOUT5, that's SHAKEOUT and the number 5, and you'll save 5 bucks on your registration before November 30th, 2019. You can also find all of this information in the show notes that go along with this episode. My thanks to the 37th Annual Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon 10K and 5K for their support of the Morning Shakeout podcast. Now let's get back to the show. Back to your competitive soccer career. When did it start? winding down for you? Uh, that's a great question. I, I, I would argue that as a professional athlete, I was always on the cusp of making something positive, and then I would I would have injuries or whatever that be. So I, I spent my time five years into, the, into being a professional athlete, uh, really kind of almost triple-A ball-type concept where you're fighting to play at the upper levels, you're doing well in some aspects, and then you get hurt. Now you're taking a step back. So I had numerous injuries. I had, um, and who knows why? You'd think I knew what to do, right? But for whatever reason, I think not getting rehab at 14, I think, affected my body composition. No doubt. Mm-hmm. Like If I name the injuries, ACL, I don't have an ACL in my right knee. I don't have an LCL. I have an LCL, but it's loose. I have a left, or excuse me, a right hamstring tear that's what's called an avulsion. Everything's on the right leg, which is the femur that I broke, right? So what's the coincidence? I have a leg length discrepancy. So these injuries led me to think, maybe I should go be a PT. I was already a PT, so I'm like, maybe I should just be a PT. And once you kind of realize, like, maybe the, you know, maybe my days are numbered, that was another tough transition for me, really uh, finding my path through there. And depression for sure. Just like, this is everything I've ever dreamed about and now I can't do it. Or if I can, I got to go to El Paso. No offense to El Paso, but I didn't want to be in El Paso for a minor league team. I wanted to be playing at the MLS or professionally. 
So did you go from accepting the fact that your soccer career was over right into opening are you i'd love to learn what the next steps were for you well your listeners will like this i was at the time back in 2001 2002 dated a girl uh she asked me to go swimming i jump in the pool and she like would swim four laps for my one (laughs) i'm like wait a second found out she's a division one swimmer hey what are you training for triathlon i'm like what's a triathlon then sure enough, swim, bike, run. Oh, I know. I, I've heard of one of those. So I literally got into triathlon, which was actually a good uh, progression for me because as a competitive athlete, I needed something to kind of grasp onto and something to really push me at a competitive level. And I love that competition. But in terms of the physical therapy world, I I was already working for a company in town. Here and, in San Diego? Yeah, here in San Diego. And I would I would work part-time during the off-season or full-time during the off-season and part-time um, and during the season, like five hours or fill-in, right? You can't really work during the season. And so what ended up happening is I start, I just went back and got a job. And then, like I said, I was not pleased with how things were done. So I really always looked at where I worked and I worked at a lot of different places. And I was like, man, there's something better. And I would kind of push the envelope. And I was always that kid that probably needed to start my own company because I didn't. You're unemployable. I played well with others, but I probably was the guy put. I, I'm going up to the owner saying, "Why are we doing this? Like, can't, shouldn't we be doing this?" And some people like that, and some don't. So, you and I are similar in that way. Yeah, I felt like I felt like I should be at one. I wanted to be at a company where I could tell my ideas and felt like they were taken serious, and that never happened for me. So I started my own contract business in, in 2001. Um, just treating individual patients. I just would go into other clinics and fill in for pregnancy leave or. Um, you name it. You're on, you're sick for two weeks or there, have a high volume for a couple weeks. Substitute PT sort of. Which was fantastic because I literally just took stock in everything everyone did and I recognized all the things I liked and all the things I thought could be done better. And at that time, you never saw a PT clinic with anything but PT. There was no strength conditioning. There was no fitness. And so- Very one-dimensional yeah. and type then of it, environment. Yeah, and then the transition from there is 2003 early 2003, a little late 2002, I'm, I'm doing this fill-in work and I had multiple patients coming to me saying, wow, whatever you're doing is very different than I've had. And then they'd go up to the front and schedule with Brian and I'm gone and they'd get frustrated. So now they're asking me, hey, can I come see you somewhere else? I'm like, no, that's not ethical. Like I'm telling them no. And over time I said, you know, when, the, when it all works out in the wash, if you find me, I'm happy to work with you, but I'm not going to steal you. And they respected that. I think that was great. And so what happened is a couple clients called me. They were done with PT. I'd moved on. And they said, hey, can I come see you? Sure enough, I started seeing people in my garage in 2003. So I was seeing, literally, I set up a table, a whole clinic in my garage. But real quickly, I had five, six, seven, eight clients. And then I started having doctors hear about me and sending me clients. And now they're showing up to my house. And I'm every time I'm running out there greeting, I'm like, don't freak out. This is my house. Are you okay with that? And so I realized- And they're really, all just paying you cash because I can't imagine you're taking insurance. No, I'm taking insurance out of my garage. For really? Sure. No yeah. way. You can't do that anymore. Okay. Uh, and maybe you couldn't do it then. <laughs> but you did it. But anyway. I did it. But I was that way. I could I could just figure out you know, a strategy. And, and if you're talking business, like some of the time- some of the greatest businesses started in the garage. So I pride myself on, you know, the likes of 
Steve Harley Davidson, Steve Jobs, right? You think Apple and, and Amazon and all these people. So I laugh about that. But I'm I didn't certain. know that part of the story. That's yeah. wild. So, I mean, literally I had a, a, a client that he's a, a high-profile lawyer, and he steps up on a box and hits his head on a beam in my garage. And we just started laughing about it. I'm like, the last guy I want him hitting his head on the, you know, the garage is a lawyer. Is a lawyer. And that guy, uh, 16 years later, still comes. When did you and your brother decide that you wanted to go into business together and make this an official thing? We actually directly and indirectly decided that in the hospital in 2000 or 1991. So we're in the hospital and we said to each other, wow, wouldn't that be cool if we did this someday? So we, the concept was that there. That seed was planted early. Oh, totally. Wow. Okay. But, it, but it wasn't like nothing was done, right? The business plan sure. was never written. And so again, once I'm in my garage, I'm realizing I can't stay in my garage. Like I'm not, it's, you're just not going to be taken seriously too long. Like making a computer in your garage is different because no one's seeing it till the product's done. But Actually, working with a human is a little different. Right. So I, I recall like one day going, looking at some buildings, just going, and I called my brother and said, Hey, Sean, we got to do this. Like, we just can't wait any longer. And he's up in LA working. He's like thinking, You're really going to do this now? We talked about it later. What's going on? And so, I, you know, that's not also not in my nature. I just, I'm going to go for it. You just so, do things. Yeah. yeah. So I signed a lease with literally like eight patients, no, no real business plan. And did you have the name at that point? Yeah, Rehab United came from a soccer background. So if you know soccer at all, football, everything's United. Manchester United right. was kind of the concept. And then a good friend of ours from high school drew the swoosh. And funny enough, we were in March of 2003. We were in a seminar in Phoenix by a guy by the name of Gary Gray. He's uh, kind of a, a huge mentor for me, really, where our foundation comes from, our philosophy. Met him. And within an hour or two, I was like, this is the only way things should be done. I felt so strongly about this philosophy. I was all in, and I thought, all you need is four walls. We don't need anything else. Like to do good, to do a really good job at physical therapy, we need four walls, and and we'll do what I felt like was going to be better than anyone else doing it in the industry. And so that was March, June of two thousand three. We opened the doors. How would you explain that philosophy? AFS Applied Functional Science is kind of a it's essentially everything the body needs and wants to be successful, and then you're applying that. So your principal strategies, strategies and techniques apply to that functional principle. So to give you an example, if the foot does something every time you take a step, which we know pronates, in technical terms, the heel drops into eversion, the foot pronates, the forefoot uh, inverts, that mechanism is something that you should know in the, in the industry. Because when I look at you as a runner, I'm watching on the treadmill. If it's not happening, we have a problem. And so rather than putting a band around your ankle and having you do TheraBand exercises, I'm actually standing up going, does your heel do this? Does your forefoot do this? And then I'm applying that technique. So really, truly looking at things from a functional functionomics kind of standpoint, right? You think of kinesthetics. Kin 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 like yeah, so we look at what does the body need to do? So if I take you in a, as a running athlete, I look at your right foot in front and your left foot in front, two different stride points, and I call them bookends. And I'm going to look at you and treat you and assess you in those functional positions because that's the way your quad works. That's the way your hamstring works. And so much of the time we're, we've thought, we've learned, oh, the quad extends the knee. But reality is the quad doesn't. It actually lengthens in knee flexion. So if you sit down, every time you sit down, your knee's actually eccentrically loading, we, you know, and I'm getting technical to some extent, but these are things that probably most of your listeners have heard, eccentric loading. 
And so that's applied functional science becomes truly first and foremost, you and I can't argue that there's gravity, there's ground reaction, there's three planes of motion. Those are things we can't argue. So my strategy is just based off of what you show me rather than a preconceived idea of what the rotator cuff should be doing, right? Like you've probably seen the band exercise. And if you, if you were to see me right now, I'm doing the TheraBand rotator cuff exercise that everyone has ever seen. I've never seen a major league pitcher throw a baseball like that. I've never seen someone open a door like that. I've never seen someone open the fridge like that. It's not functional. It's not functional. So, you know, and there's a lot of people in my industry that would argue back, and I get their arguments. You know, you're still prepping tissue or you're isolating. But reality is, in the end, we have to move towards facilitating function. And so that essentially our global foundation is applied functional science. And it's very effective. Um, Athletes tend to come and see it and recognize how quickly they their body says, man, I need this and want it. This is fantastic. I'm feeling better already. How have you expanded upon that philosophy since those early days to include other elements? I think you have to be really cautious not thinking you know the way, right? There's not one way. There's certainly, we know that adage, but again, I told you earlier, I think a lot of PTs have a, a mindset that this is the only way. And I and even though I love AFS and believe that's my foundation, that doesn't mean I can't see the value in other things, right? Just because a bench press isn't functional, it might be for a college athlete that's going to bench press for the combine, right? So you can't, you can't have one block in your head of this is how things go. What, what's really evolved is the way we have standardized the systems and processes to evaluate the client, um, but then the innovations there to create millions of exercises, do you mean that specifically for here at RU or in the physical therapy world in general? So here at RU, so PTs, again, real, still real slow to adopt this concept. In fact, universities don't even teach applied functional science, or if they do, it's very limited because your board tests are not, they have nothing to do with applied functional science. So we're certainly behind, right? Cart before the horse. And so we're educating our community. We're educating other PTs, but, you know, that doesn't mean I, I don't, you go look at my Facebook or my Instagram. I don't, I don't even have a thousand followers because I don't spend time on it. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not getting content out there, which is, which is unfortunate because I feel like there's content for people that they could start to understand. A people need way. to hear this stuff. I think so. And, and it's out there. I mean, it's everywhere. It's it, our way is just one way. Right. So, well, I, I'd argue, don't take this the wrong way. You almost do yourself a disservice by calling yourselves a physical therapy office because things have been done a certain way for so long. And from the patient perspective, they have this idea of what physical therapy is. Oh, I go in and I see this person who probably isn't going to ask me any questions. They read the report of what's wrong with me. They pull out their manual and they say, go home and do these five exercises. And then maybe you come in and it's just like, it's a waste of time. Right, You hear it all the time from people like, I don't want to go to physical therapy. It's a waste of time. But what you do here, and I've seen it um, because I've known you for a long time. I've been treated here. My wife's been treated here. It's a very different approach that you take, but I can see it just being like a challenge where someone's like, no, it's just like, it's like any other physical therapy office. Yeah. Um, So it's like, you almost have to like rely on that word of mouth and having people saying, no, 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 it's, it's very different there. They're not gonna, you know, just like get you in and and get you out. It's way more holistic. Yeah. We have some, some key things we say, like treat causes, not symptoms, right? Things that maybe provoke thought, Mm -hmm. but, but really it's about 
coaching the community, the athlete, the physician, whoever's coming, referring, that we're truly looking at human movement in the deficit that you might have. So patients, clients love it because someone's actually telling them what what's going on in their body. So you're le- like often people go to a physician, family practice doc, and they come out more confused or really not with a lot of information. X-ray is negative. And what do I do now? Go to PT. We're trying to change the industry. So yet you go to PT right away. Every athlete I ever work with, every client, I'm telling them, next time you're hurt, just pick up the phone and call a PT. Show up in our office. If it's musculoskeletal, if it's back pain, neck pain, foot pain, wrist pain, that's our specialty. There's no one positioned better in the industry than us to treat that. With that being said, you have to know you're going to a place that's that can evaluate that high-level movement because not every place can. And so really just doing your research helps the athlete, like really evaluating who in town has the skill set because the trends are out there, cupping, scraping, taping, uh, blood flow restriction, which I'm a huge, huge fan of, and I think tons of your listeners would benefit from it. Um, Those are techniques or tools in the bag. That doesn't change that if I don't align the tissue, if I don't make you – your ankle, knee, and hip talk to each other and work well, you're not going to run without pain, right? So I can scrape the quad all the time or foam roll the IT band, and maybe I'll get some relief. But in the end, I'm not changing the problem. That's that's really in the nut of it all is that's the key. You have to know where's the problem coming from. And that's difficult sometimes because it might be something really hard to find. And it might take you three, four visits before you even find it. But in in a single leg sport like running, I mean, it's truly a single leg sport. You're landing on one, the other one's in the air, you're on to the next, right? So what's happening in that in that path, right? What's happening to the pelvis, the, the knee, and so on and so forth? When you got into endurance sports, triathlon specifically, after your soccer career was over, you're training for races, you're part of the community here, going on bike rides, running with people, swimming at the pool, putting your physical therapist hat on at that point, observing what types of things people are dealing with from an injury standpoint. Were you surprised at all when you immersed yourself in this endurance world for the first time from that standpoint? The biggest, the biggest surprise is how little non-sagittal plane movement exists. Like that would be first and foremost. So everything we do is forward. And so if you ask a soccer player to do a warm-up, you'll see all these moves they do and hip movements. And that wasn't showing up when I would take the triathletes through warm-ups or I'd go down with the tri-club of San Diego and take them through a warm-up or whatever. And so that was quite entertaining to some extent. It's like I, me and you go to the mall, I see something different than you. You see stores, I see people with their toes out walking funny. So it's hard to shut that part of your brain off, but go to a master swim class and I'm seeing someone cross their arm over and I'm thinking, wow, that's impingement in three days. So I'm over there whispering, to, hey, you should bring your arm out here and not do that. So it's hard not to think that way. But in terms of just endurance sports in general, they're so repetitive. And what you know studies have shown is the barrier to strength training, the barrier to physical therapy is time and knowledge. You know, they've done studies on, a decent high volume study was done on like 432 um, ultra athletes, so long distance runners and cyclists. And it was a simple questionnaire whether or not they did strength training. And they would say, some would say yes, but their barrier to continue doing it was they didn't know how to progress themselves and then time. And my argument would be you're going to miss a lot more time if you don't do it because you're eventually going to get hurt. 
in the first phase or cycle of a training program, you know, hill repeats on a cycle on a bike, you're certainly getting strong. Certainly you're going to see speeds change, right? You start running 5Ks, 10Ks and build up. Great. Then all of a sudden you recognize most of the people coming into me say, I've run the, my last four half marathons and I've never gotten any faster. In fact, I may have even gotten slower. And then you look at them and they can't stand on one leg or they can't squat with one leg. And you think about like the longer you go, the more core you need, the more stability you need, the more functional efficiency you need. And if you don't have that, that's where the injuries arise. But what happens is we get hurt and we want the quick fix. So we go to a chiropractor, we go to an acupuncturist. And not that those things don't help, but we're not treating the root cause. And that's the biggest thing I see in the sport is I'm willing to pay a lot of money for, I'll buy new shoes every month or I'll buy a brand new bike for 10 grand, but I'm not willing to spend my time or money on my health. That, that, is, that varies per, obviously, athlete, but I see that being a trend. Well, a few things there, and you mentioned it earlier. We live in a society now where everyone, I mean, people want things yesterday, right? Yeah, they, totally. they want things as, as quickly as possible. I worked at a running store for many years. People come in, do you have the insert that will take my plantar fasciitis away. It's yeah. like, well, if that existed, someone would be like a multi-billionaire at this point, but they're treating, you know, the, the symptom, they're not treating the cause. I'm sure you see it here in this office yeah. all the time. You just explained, like you see it in running, like, you know, people will go and be like, Oh, I'll, I'll buy the vapor fly 4%. Like, it's just like, they don't want to take that, you know, that long-term approach. It's like a quick fix type thing. And what's always been interesting to me, specific to to running, I don't see this in all endurance sports, but one thing I see in running athletes that I work with or inherit at some point, they haven't actually taken the time to work on the skill of running and the mobility, (laughs) the movement aspect of it. I mean, my wife, who you know, competitive swimmer growing up, first thing they do when they throw you in the water is they teach you how to swim properly. They work on your form and your technique and that gets reinforced throughout your swimming career through the club, through high school, college, and, you know, in the masters, a lot of people, they start running and they just start running. There's not running coaches hanging out, just, you know, just just focusing on, on movement. And I think that ends up getting a lot of people into trouble and then they get hurt and then they want that quick fix right away because they got hurt right away. And it's like this, this vicious cycle. So I guess my long-winded way of getting to a question that asks, what can runners do who maybe they just started, maybe they've been in the sport for a while, but they've had no real technique training. Is it too late to start that? Now you can make change in an athlete that's been a really high-level athlete. A lot of times a real accomplished runner will come see me and ask for, why am I hurting? And I will find a glitch in some mechanical side of their running, right? So I'm kind of, I kind of nerd out on the running form and where foot placement should be and, and really hip angle and knee angle and so forth, right? Let me stop you right there. Is there an ideal running form? No, there's certainly not. There's certainly things you don't want to see, but there's never a perfect running form. In fact, you probably have run races where you can't believe someone is in front of you with the form they have, right? But there's certainly things that we've seen researched over time, right? Where imagine foot placement in front of the medial line is not good. That's a break. So when we land on our heel, we slow momentum down, right? So that's more stress, more impact, more load to the quad, more load to the hamstring. So we get fatigued more quickly. Also, we're asking more of certain tissues in the ankle, right? 
put the foot underneath the hip or move the hip over the foot, which you see in some of these really great runners. There's a, there's a YouTube clip online which has Ryan Hall and Meb running in slow-mo, and I show it to athletes all the time because I show them, like, it looks like this foot is going to land five feet in front of them, and you see the momentum moves their hip out for, over their foot. And they're still landing under their center of gravity. 100%. And then we teach that we teach that technique in here. So I show people, like, how do I get to that place? Because I'm not going to run a 450 mile, you know, or 430 or whatever these guys are running mile after mile, right? So that's not even realistic. Uh, someone that's running a 10-minute pace is never going to have the same hip angle or knee angle as this elite athlete in a marathon, right? We recognize that. But we still have similar principles, and we still know in order to be really effective, we need the glute to engage. And our mindset in the industry to engage, engage the glute is so different than what it really should be. No one running can ever think about their glute. Like, if you do, you're not, you're not really enjoying the moment, right? So how do we get things to turn on and work efficiently without having to think about it. So we're taking people through programs that exist. So if I'm a couch to 5K person, one of the things that we know right away is they have no tolerance. They haven't run enough to tolerate the foot going through pronation. So we end up with shin splints, right? It's like such a classic. We get hamstring or quad injuries. And often the programs they're jumping into don't have mobility programs, don't have stretching. So most communities... You can find someone that's a runner and a professional therapist at the same time. And I would argue that most triathletes or most runners or most cyclists try to find those people. But if you don't think that way and you just kind of, oh, my doctor referred me here, you end up a place with someone that doesn't understand your sport, right? And they sit you down for every exercise. So It gives PT a bad name. Yeah, it gives PT a bad name, but more, more than that, it just doesn't get people where they need to be as quickly. So one of the things that we pride ourselves on is getting people back fast, right? Better than the national average. Well, how do you do that? Again, feed the body what it needs, right? If you're having a problem with your running form and you never address it, it doesn't matter how strong I make your ankle. You still have crappy form and you're still going to end up with an injury. So if I make your ankle stronger, maybe you don't have shin splints anymore, but now you have knee pain or now you have hip pain. So we look at the common injuries that happen in running, right? You get Achilles tendonitis, you get runner's knee, whatever, whatever that is, right? It's tendonitis. So why do we get tendonitis? Bad form, bad alignment, repetition. It's that simple. It's a simple formula. Doing something poorly too long causes pain. Well, if you have pain and you have that problem, you should immediately find a specialist, not a physician. Uh, if it's a physician, they need to be a specialist in that movement, right? But find someone that all they do is musculoskeletal injuries and they can coach you and teach you form mechanics because that just there needs to be running form mechanics out there for these athletes because if not, all you're doing is having, like, I think the dropout rate is pretty significant in these new programs, right? I think it's like 30% or right. something like that. What is that from? That's from not having training and the barrier to anything is pain. Pain is like the number one motivator to stop doing something. Yeah. And when I have pain, I can't. So many places I want to go there, but how would you advise the average athlete to find a qualified physical therapist who can help them? Because I think that's one of the biggest hurdles for people to clear. They all can't come here to San Diego and get treated by sure. Rehab United. So how would you advise people to do that in their own community? So some people live somewhere where they don't have that community, right? And so we do telehealth. So I'll see people all over the country, all over the world, get on Zoom, and I just do a quick assessment. The other thing is if you go on to Gary Gray, Gray is G-R-A-Y, has a website and he has a essentially a physical therapy finder. You go in, you can go on the map, you can find someone in your area. 
key, you know, key statements that you can search online for websites is, again, applied functional science, you know, chain reaction, functional mechanics, whatever. So find someone that when you see their website, you see their Instagram, whatever, you're seeing functional application, pretty good indication you're going to get something better than the traditional sense. Um, but it takes some, that's one of the problems, right? It takes time to go find that professional. But often in communities, once you find that professional, now you have them and now they're your go-to. They're almost like your urgent care. Like yeah. I tell everyone, well, let's be, let us be your urgent care. Because, and most of the time these- We'll get you back to doing what you want to do a 100%. lot faster. And if, if people would just, if I could make, give anyone advice is go immediately. So Saturday run, you're, you joined a club, you're getting ready for the rock and roll marathon in whatever city you live in, and you go to your Saturday run and you get a shin splint. Most people do nothing about that. They try to stretch it. And I say nothing. They do stretching, ice, whatever they know, whatever their friend knows. Oh, I had that once. Do this foam roll. Whatever Dr. Google says. Yeah. The reality is that should be an immediate call to a PT because now it's one or two sessions, not 12. And when we get people to do that, they're really fixing the problem really, really early. Nip it. Nip it in the bud. And then it's not an issue the rest of the season. But now if you go five, six weeks of that, you're not making that marathon. You're too deep into the running to catch up. Now you're going to get hurt otherwise because you're trying to make up distance. So that's a, a big thing we push here in our communities, like get to the professional as fast as possible. And don't wait till it's a problem, but it's human nature, right? I'm, not, I'm Why would I call? It's, it'll go away by next Saturday. <laughs> well, and it takes, it takes work, right? And back to like the greater point we're making a little while ago, yeah. people just want that, that quick fix. It takes effort to make an appointment, get in the car, drive to the sure. office, sit in the waiting room, go through that. Yeah. You know, it's just like this whole rigmarole. Most people just are like, nope, I'll go and see what Google says. I'll give it a try. And if it doesn't work, then maybe I'll try something else or it'll just go away. In reality is probably everyone listening's ha- tried a technique and it's worked, We've right? Been there. You've yeah. done a lacrosse ball or a foam roll and it's helped. It, it does help. And a lot of times things don't need physical therapy. They just need to be managed, right? And that's what we want to do as well. Like educate the community to manage their own care uh, or their own injuries. There is a management side of that where you can take care of yourself, but don't let it linger is the point. When you got into endurance sports, did you personally deal with any, we'll call them growing pains, getting into doing more swimming, biking, running? Running obviously is the hardest on the body and where you're going to be most susceptible to injury. But I'd love to understand if you had any issues yourself as you got into these sports for the first time. And if you were surprised by that, just given your athletic background. Yeah, I think for me, and maybe I'm similar to, because I wasn't, as a triathlete, I'm decent. I'm not amazing. I can run pretty fast. I think I'm in the 120s for a half marathon. So that's not terrible, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not, uh, it's really good. Yeah. But, it, but my, I guess my, for me, I felt like when I got into the sport, the biggest problem I had was volume too fast. And the reason I would do volume too fast is because I, even though I knew physiologically, I shouldn't do it. I, I was like a lot of people is, oh, I'm going to sign up for this race my buddy's doing. And it just happens to be in eight weeks, not in 12. And so I'm getting my volume up too fast. Hit and the so, panic button and just start ramping things up. And what, what happened for me, and I think everyone has their thing, right? People know their thing, right? My, my knee goes south at a certain point. For me, it was always I'd get kind of this uh, medial shin pain. And I would get it because I was taking the impact and couldn't control it. So I hadn't built up this ability of my foot to slow down, slow me down a little faster, or I was going too fast. So I was pronating very quickly. And 
so I had to learn how to build to that zone. So I would I changed all my training programs from that point forward to have my ramp up period be really more dialed and more controlled and less volume. And then once I got past that stage, then I could tolerate a fair amount of volume. But I think you and I have talked about this when I've trained. I don't tolerate running more than three days a week. I, I just, I break down. I, do, I don't, like even for my Ironman, I, I never ran more than three days a week. In addition to what you do here at are you, I mean, you don't treat as many people as you did in the past because you're running the business. You also do some coaching yeah. on the side, for lack of a better way yeah. to put it, where you're working with triathletes and runners. When you're writing their programs, you're obviously getting them the long runs that they need, the bike rides, the swims, managing intensity, all yeah. of that stuff. How are you building in sort of prehab, rehab, technique work into their training schedules? A lot of it's just looking at the season that they want to accomplish. Like I have an athlete that she's qualified for both 70.3 Worlds and Kona, and that's new for me. I haven't coached someone going to Kona. Well, I've, I haven't had a lot of athletes at you know going to these next level races. Level, right. And she's really interesting because she's also a physician. She's also a Navy diver. She's she's like next level badass, right? And so. We have to be really cautious because I've recognized that she can get hurt really quickly. And so I've integrated strength into her programs um, and biomechanical ideas for her, such as bounds and and some of the plyometrics that I think would be beneficial for her. But we do that all in under 20 minutes. So it's not, I don't need to go to a gym for an hour. And I have her do it before the run. So I'm fatiguing her prior to the run. And then when she goes and does her, I say run, but before she does the workout. So now I know I'm able to build a higher endurance. Plus I know she, muscular endurance is going to matter to her because she doesn't get the same amount of sleep as most people. She's, you know, on call or she has all these barriers to, to working out. So if I know also she lives in a spot that's 900 degrees, you know, so she's not outside training. So trainer and treadmill, I got to adjust my volume for her. And we've had a really good success with that. And it took me taking a step back and really thinking through her program to say, how do I make sure she doesn't get hurt? Because the last thing you want, you get to the big race and the reason you're not there isn't because you're not fit or, you know, it's because of an injury. Um, and I do that with all my athletes. I, I never let them not strength train because most of the time strength training, strength training. And then as we get to the big weeks, we take it away. And I never allow that. I just decrease the volume of it. So I, I don't, what, what happens when you, if you've ever lifted consistently and then you stop, the next time you do that workout, you, you can't walk for two, three days, right? You're, you're so sore. So delayed onset muscle soreness is a problem. And I don't want that to be there in the future for my athletes. So I never take the strength out. It's just like anything else. Volume goes up in one area. As soon as volume goes up, mobility goes up. You're pulling levers. I'm pulling every string I can. And that's been just years of doing it with, you know, I've seen hundreds of thousands of people in 20 years of doing this, right? Plus coaching. So you get all these opportunities to work with people. And what you realize is you don't know what everyone's going through. I mean, I had the f fun chance of working with your wife at one point. We always joked she'd swim four days a week because she loves it. If I could swim as good as your wife, I would take swimming off the table and just bike and run. <laughs> She's going to be shaking her head as she I listens know, to she this. Is. So, so ultimately my my point in that is it's super important for me and from coming from my background to, to initiate things that I think are preventative. 
But aside from that, when someone, one of my athletes get hurt, they know immediately to say something. And then I get online with them or I send them videos specifically I've made for them to say, here's what you should be doing. That tends to prevent the, my athletes tend not to miss time for injury just because I'm so, You're my, ahead of I'm it. just getting ahead of it as much as I can and being mindful of it. Aside from the innovative, holistic approach that you take here at Rehab United, one of the most impressive things to me as I've observed over the years and been a part of it is the community that you've built around Rehab United. You have how many locations? We have seven. Seven locations just in San Diego. Well, one in Seattle, six here. Six here, one in Seattle. And there's a lot going on besides just treating people on the table. I used to come to strength class on Monday nights. I know that's still going. You've got different workouts going on throughout the year. When you and Sean conceived of this, not when you were 14, but when it actually became a viable business, however many years later, 12 years later, was that part of the plan to build a community around this physical therapy office as you're treating patients? A hundred percent. I think initially it's an idea, it's a feeling, right? And but very quickly we recognized the way we were treating people created a culture. Like culture is buzzword, right? You hear it all the time. And for us, we knew our culture was going to be created not just by us, but really by the community. And one of the greatest things ever everyone would say, patients would come in, clients would say is, as soon as you walk in here, you can feel something different. And that was super important to us. And I always knew, I mean, that's just my nature. I've always wanted to have a large group, friend group. I want everyone around. I'm the, my wife's always like, do we have to have that many people over for dinner? Can we just back off on the social? Um, but my, my feeling was we needed to create a culture and a community that was so strong that they could not tell the story outside of our walls. And we also knew we needed to treat ourselves first in that fashion. So we needed to give our employees the best of the best, the care, the the love, the encouragement. And so we built these cultures over time. We built our values, although they were always kind of innate. We didn't do the business thing where you sit down with your board and come up with what, you know, your strategic plan and so forth. But I, that has evolved for me. And that's part of what I do as a business now is I sit with my executive team as well as I tell the story to my entire community. So if you work five hours a week for me or you work, you know, full time as a director, you need to know our story and you need to know how to uh, behave in our community. And so for us, it's I, I've cut, there's like a double golden super platinum rule. And that is to do not unto others is what you want done. But really, when you come and see me, or, or and I kind of feel this way in general about my friends, is like, can I do something for you that's even above what you need or want or think you need? And so much of the time, we don't know. We walk in and I'm hurt. I don't know what to do. I'll call the doctor myself. I'll I'll get you into an MRI faster. That to me was something we had to do to tell the community we care so much about you as an individual that we'll go above and beyond. And that just spread like wildfire. And now what I see is my community, which is my team, our our employees, that's who they are. I mean, we're lucky enough to work in an industry that are people that just care, right? I mean, if you took color tests, I think 80% of all PTs are blue. You know, they care, they collaborate, and so on and so forth. But it's fun for you to ask me that question because it's something I'm super proud of. Like, 
we get together as a team, all staff, 125 plus employees. We get together yearly, a couple times a year, and we just get to enjoy each other. And we did this drill one time, and you can edit this out or not, but we asked us, pick five questions on the board. There's five questions on the board. I wrote them down. And I honestly can't even remember the other four because no one picked any of the other four. And what it was is, you, I said, I started, I said, hey, I'm going to pick an employee. And I said, employee, stand up, said something about them. Hey, really appreciate this about you. You've been outstanding. And for the next two hours, it just went around people picking the next person. And the question or the question was, you know, pick someone or the, the drill was pick someone that has done something that's helped you, lifted you up, whatever. And it was, it was basically gratitude back to them. And it just buzzed for like two hours of that. It was like, it was amazing. I mean, it was a cry fest, everyone's bawling, whatever. Not too many companies that get to do that. So we've, we've stressed that culture as, as a major piece of who we are. And I think what's great about the running community is it becomes this great community, right? I mean, it's the people you meet up with on Saturday that run in the park. That, that's what it's about, I think. I would agree with that. I think that community aspect, whether it's here at RU, whether it's with that Saturday morning run crew that you have, whether it's with you know the neighbor down the street who you meet on Tuesday mornings at six and you guys get in some miles before work, it's hugely valuable. And a lot of us don't engage in that or we lose it at some point. And I think it's just a, a good reminder that community is important no matter what form it comes in, whether it's in a work environment, whether it's, you know, part of, you know, I even look at what I was describing about RU is just like not even, I mean, your staff, you've built a good internal community, but just like what you've done, you know, here in, in San Diego, but just finding that whatever it is for you uh, can really just help elevate your entire life. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's something I've always thought about is like servant you know, being a, something I've always thought about is serving others. Like that's our industry We're my job is to help you. Right. And so innately that's giving back to someone, but we also don't always know what's going on in people's worlds. Right. And so sometimes the guy honking at you on the freeways, he's had a rough morning and you don't know why. So instead of flipping him off, you know, and trust me, I got a little bit of road rage. I, I get all fired up on the freeway, but something I'm always telling my staff and my employees is, really focus on what you can do for everyone else around you. And that's just, again, bled into our community. So it's not just our staff. It is our our clients, our, our friends, our family. Just they believe in what we're doing. And it's because it is bigger than ourselves. You know, like you think about a team, you know, I am second. There's so many things we use in our our company to remind people that this isn't about them. You know, it's not about you. It's about someone else. And if you go somewhere and it's, and you just feel like you're a number, right? Or you just feel like you're uh, an annoyance or, yeah, I got to get you to the bike or I got to get you on ice and stem. Like that's not a lot of value to you emotionally, physically. And so I think you have to really kind of evaluate that. And I also think as an athlete, as a client, as a human, some, we just don't share a lot sometimes of what our inner demons are, what we're thinking. And then ultimately, I think so many of us are scared. Why don't you go to the gym? Because I'm fat. Okay, everyone's going to look at me. And reality is we're all pretty selfish and no one's in the gym looking at you because they're looking at themselves. And if we can coach people to recognize like, 
it doesn't matter. Like we got to really focus on you and what's important to you. And we try so hard to do that because it's scary. You know, you walk into a, a place you don't know, you're hurt. It's pretty tough for people to do. And in particular, strength and conditioning, you walk into our gym and that barrier is pretty significant because there, there's fear or there's doubt or whatever. And so culturally, we stress to our team, like that has to be something you focus on. You have to make people feel, we, we call it the wow factor. You know, if you don't wow people, like we did something wrong. I think whatever it is, you've got to knock down those walls. I see it all the time in running. People don't want to join a group because they think everyone's faster than them and they don't belong. Even when I worked in a running shop, people didn't want to come into the shop because they only thought people who went to running stores were serious runners or people who don't want to sign up for races because they look at that as what professionals do. And sure. what I mean, just as you described and what I'm describing here, it comes it comes down to these walls we set up for ourselves. And I think it's helping one another knock them down or showing others that there is something on the other side that you can take part in and experience. That's so important. Absolutely. And everyone has their experience that they can bring to the table. I can't think of a better place to wrap up this conversation. Thanks for letting me hit record on it. I'm excited to share it with others, but this was super fun. Thanks for making the time today. Thank you, Ben. All right, another episode in the books. Thank you so much for listening in. What'd you think? If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on your preferred social media platform and encourage your friends and followers to tune in and subscribe to the show. You can also leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're listening to this on. It only takes a minute and it really means a lot to me. A big thank you to the 37th annual Kaiser Permanente San Francisco Half Marathon 10K and 5K for sponsoring this episode. You can run through San Francisco's Golden Gate Park and along the Pacific Ocean on these fast and scenic courses. This event is presented by Pama Kid Runners and it supports local San Francisco Bay Area community organizations and nonprofits with donations of more than $75,000 per year. So mark your calendars. Race day is February 2nd, 2020. You can register today at getfitkpsf.com. Use the code SHAKEOUT5, that's SHAKEOUT in the number five, and you'll save five bucks on your registration if you sign up before November 30th, 2019. A big shout out, as always, to my man, John Summerford of bearsrecords.com. He's my audio ninja for this show. He makes every episode sound clear and amazing. I couldn't do this without him. Also, thank you to Jeffrey Stern for the editorial assistance and Chris Douglas, who handles my sponsorship sales. I don't have a big team here at the Morning Shakeout, but these three guys, they help keep this ship afloat. Last thing, if you're digging the podcast, I encourage you to sign up for my newsletter. It's also conveniently called The Morning Shakeout at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. And you'll get my weekly take on what's happening in the world of running, along with a collection of things that I've been thinking about, reading, and listening to that I think you'll enjoy getting in your inbox every Tuesday morning. Okay, that's it. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of The Morning Shakeout Podcast.